It's a Thursday night, and after a gruesome hour of doing Mr. Randolph's homework for your AP psychology class, you decide it's time for some R&R. So you go to watch a show, grab your blanket, and put on Criminal Minds. This episode is another, you guessed it, serial killer psychopath. Now you might start to get scared thinking the next person that knocks on your door is a psychopath. Now this is highly unlikely, but you're not completely wrong. It's estimated around 1% of people in the U.S. have antisocial personality disorder. This 1% is actually bigger than we think. And although it may seem scary, learning about the actual brands of a psychopath may help us to ease some unsettledness and form more understanding surrounding the topic that intrigues many others, like myself. Abigail Marsh, author of the book The Fear Factor, a book about how one emotion connects altruists, psychopaths, and everyone in between, dives deeper into why people with antisocial personality disorder are the way they are, and how it connects back to one emotion, fear. Abigail defines psychopathy as a disorder that robs the human brain of the capacity for compassion. Before I dive deeper into explaining the book, I should establish that not all killers are psychopaths and not all psychopaths are killers. When first meeting psychopaths, they may appear completely normal. Take Gary Ridgway, for example, the Green River Killer, one of the most infamous psychopath killers in the U.S. The reason why and how he got close to so many of the girls is because he appeared as a completely normal guy. He would lure his victims in by showing them pictures of his son, Matthew, or leaving his toys on the seat of his truck. In an interview in 2004, Tony Savage, Ridgway's defense attorney, says, quote, I keep telling people, you could sit down and talk with this guy at a tavern and have a beer with him. 20 minutes later, I'd come up and say, hey, this is the Green River Monster. And you would say, no way, end quote. And if you think about it, there's no way psychopaths would be able to commit these long series of crimes if they appeared creepy or off at first. That being said, there are signs that do point to people with ASPD, such as early behavior problems, Grandois' sense of self-worth, poor anger control, failure to accept responsibility, and many more. Psychopathy is a developmental disorder, meaning it doesn't emerge out of nowhere in adulthood. Essentially, without exception, all psychopathic adults first showed signs of psychopathy during adolescence or childhood. This means for every psychopathic adult, there's one psychopathic child. Abigail dived deeper into psychopathy in adolescence and recruited several dozen children with psychopathic traits for brain imaging studies. To diagnose someone as a psychopath, they need to score at least 30 points out of 40 on the PCLR test, standing for Psychopathy Checklist Revised. It is possible for a nine-year-old to possess all the personality and behavioral traits that would lead us to label an adult a psychopath, but when they're a minor, they cannot get an official diagnosis. So there is a nearly identical 40-point scale designed for use in children as young as 10, called the Psychopathy Checklist Youth Version, also known as the PCLYV. Her highest scoring subject on the PCLYV was a 14-year-old girl named Amber. Even Abigail felt unsettled as Amber oozed charisma and sexuality. Amber killed the family's pet guinea pig and was happy to describe what was going on through her head during it. This frightened Abigail. After meeting many other kids and teens like Amber, Abigail was ready to begin the testing. She and her partner, Liz, used an fMRI to measure activity in parts of the brain that might be hard to assess when it comes to psychopathic teenagers. They were running what is called a passive viewing task. To make sure the results don't get too derailed, they showed the subjects photos of different people making different facial expressions like sadness, happiness, excitement, and fear, and asked them to label them male or female. 
Then they got the results back, and to no surprise, the scan showed no activation in the right amygdala when they viewed the face of someone experiencing intense fear compared to a neutral face. This was quite unlike what they saw in healthy children, who on average showed reliable increases in the amygdala activity, just as most adults do. Thus proving that psychopathy does not come from nurture, it originates from your brain, the nature side of the argument. When looking at psychopathic adults who grew up in a broken home, if you take a look at their siblings, they're not psychopathic. This goes the same way for altruism in general. There's no way to make a person more or less empathetic when it comes to how their brains function. First off, what is altruism? It's a belief in or practice of disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. But what Abigail studied was super altruistic people, sometimes known as anti-psychopaths. A measure of this typically is if they're an altruistic donor, meaning that they donated a kidney to someone they did not know with nothing in routine, not even a chance to meet the person they donated to. Abigail ended up reaching out to find subjects for her next study surrounding altruism, and to her surprise, she got many email responses back extremely quick. In the book, Abigail says that she was very surprised, but in my opinion, I think it makes sense because super altruistic people are willing to drop everything to help out with this study. She did the same test on altruistic people and found that their amygdalas light up even more when seeing fearful faces than a regular amygdala. This connects back to a stronger sense of empathy, unlike the subjects with ASPD, who are quite the opposite. Aside from the knowledge-packed content in the book, there were some things that struck out to be very interesting to me. For one, our faces and allomothering. Allomothering in nature is taking care of a child even when you're not the mother. It may seem like the obvious choice, but for other animals, it might not be. Humans and other animals, such as dogs, will tend to take in others even if they're not directly the mother. A great example of this in the daily world is adoption, or why we feel a great sense of compassion for people like nieces, nephews, or little cousins. Now here's the interesting part. Apparently, the way our faces change from looking neutral to fearful makes us look more childlike, thus leading humans to more unconsciously be more productive of the person. This also works for shorter, more petite people as well. One of my biggest takeaways from the book is that the human brain is so much more complex than just emotions because there is and always will be a reason why these things happen and where they happen too.